Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What you're about to hear is kind of a departure from our typical show. We wanted to do a show about stand-up comedy, but we decided we wanted to do it from a comedy theater, the CT Comedy Theater in Hartford, with stand-up comedians doing their sets or small versions of their sets and then talking about life being a comedian. So what you're going to hear actually are some of the sets that were performed that night with us interspersed with interviews with the comedians about as I say, what it's like to live with all the realities of the modern comics existence. So, I don't know, sit back, get ready to laugh, hopefully get ready to think, too. Here comes our comedy show. So, um, we're here at CT Improv. With us are Stash Makita, stand-up comedian and writer based in New Haven. Sean Murray, stand-up comedian and writer. Sean and Stash are the co-hosts of Fantasy Film Ball Podcast, which you can find at filmballpod.com and Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, the founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Get ready for their very special... When when does your Nutcracker start? Uh, December 21st through 23rd. All right. It's the Nutcracker Sweet and Spicy. Yes. It's a very different Nutcracker. (laughs) You should go. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about, I mean, we're going to be doing a show about what it's like to be a stand-up comedian. I mean, Stosh, what you did at the beginning there with the thing with the phone and, and your core beliefs, I don't know, can you explain the process by which you arrive at that particular choice? I'm just a weirdo, so I try to <laughs> find a way to make my weirdness palatable for an audience. Yeah. I don't like opening sets, so what I've done is I wrote down some of my core beliefs on my phone, right? And I'm going to share them with you so that hopefully we could find some common ground right up front, right? So these are my beliefs. Number one, I believe the reason all dogs hate mailmen is because they never bring them any mail. (laughs) Number two, they say you should never kick a man when he's down, but I believe that's the perfect time to kick a man. (laughs) He's already at foot level, and let's, let's be honest, I can't lift my leg that high. <laughs> I believe that when Amish teenagers are feeling rebellious, they should smoke those electronic cigarettes. Right? The e-cig is twice as badass for an Amish kid. Like, between the smoking and the electricity, you're not coming back to the next barn raising. I believe that some bumper stickers are unnecessary. Like if you drive a Ford F-150 with truck nuts, I already know you hate being tread on. You could have saved that $2.99. I believe that for every great Bruce Springsteen song, there is a Billy Joel song that explains it to stupid people. (laughs) This is what the river would sound like if it was about some Long Island waxing his Cadillac. Ack, 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 ack. (laughs) So those are my beliefs, and uh, hopefully we came a little closer together. 
See, Stasha's now used up the I'm just a weirdo answer, which would be the answer to a lot of questions that I would ask all three of them. <laughs> um, yeah. And he has preempted that. Yeah, I got nothing now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, like, was there sort of an aha moment, like, I want to do this? Or you're, like, watching somebody else on television or some comedian, and you're thinking, yeah, maybe I could do that. I mean, did you have a particular, you know, revelation at some point? Yeah, when I was... Uh maybe eight years old, seven years old, watching Norm MacDonald's MTV Half Hour Comedy Hour, he told this joke about cliff diving that I repeated to everyone in school. <laughs> and I just, I knew I wanted to be a comedian, and then it took 26 <laughs> years until I got the guts to actually try it after that. Yeah. How does, do you remember the cliff diving joke? How does yeah, it it's uh, basically the, the punchline is there's only two categories in cliff diving. You're either grand champion or stuff on a rock. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why that would be a really motivating thing. Like, okay, I want to be the guy who says that, all right? Um, so, because this is an audio format for a lot of the people, except for the people here, let me point out that Sean is wearing what appears to be one of Bootsy Collins's cast-off hats. Um, it is a big, floppy, purple hat. Let the record show that. All right. I should first of all say that both Carolyn and Sean are on our show pretty regularly on this Friday show that we have called The Nose. But, and I always introduce them, among other things, as stand-up comedians. I'd never seen either one of them do stand-up comedy <laughs> before tonight. So I was just taking it on faith until now. Um, and uh, so it turns out they really are stand-up comedians. All right. You know, Sean, I, I mean, I have known you not well, but we do, we do these shows together. And, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have hazarded even a guest, hazarded a guest, about what your style was going to be. I don't know. What, how would you describe it? Or how would you describe the set of choices that get you to the point where you have that five to seven minutes that you did? Well, Colin, uh, <laughs> one day I woke up and I was like, I think I'm black. And uh, I should tell jokes about that. Yeah. You guys look like a nice group of people. You guys look like you know how to swim. Uh, I don't know how to swim. And that's important to me because... Uh, the famous stereotype that black people don't know how to swim. It used to make me feel bad about myself that I couldn't swim. And then I, then I thought about it, and it's like, there's no reason why I would know how to swim. Like, swimming is not a skill in a black neighborhood. Like, you know it's a skill in a black neighborhood? Marksmanship is a skill <laughs> in a black neighborhood. You want to have good aim? But swimming is not a skill, because I've never been walking down the street in a neighborhood I'm unfamiliar with. It got surrounded by a bunch of dudes I don't know and thought to myself, you know what could get me out of this? The backstroke. If I could just, if I could just have you guys meet me by the lake, uh, we could handle this like gentlemen, the right way. Cowards trying to fight me on land. I live in Jamaica, Queens now, currently. And uh, it's a really it's an interesting place. Like you see a lot of, uh, getting a lot more white neighbors, and uh, they're fine, you know, they're cool people. They just don't know what it's like growing up in the type of neighborhood like Jamaica, Queens. Like, I remember I was talking to one of my neighbors around Christmas last year, and he was like, uh, remember the one gift as a kid, the one gift we all wanted was a Nintendo 64? That was the one gift we all wanted, it was a Nintendo 64. And I was like, nah, man, not around here. Around here, the one gift we ever wanted was a dad. 
told me was one, it was one dad for the whole neighborhood. <laughs> I like telling that joke because I had a dad, actually, but I realized it's very easy to convince white people you don't have a dad. <laughs> you just gotta be black and say it. You just, uh, <laughs> those are the steps. Uh, yeah, my dad was around too much. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's overrated, like. <laughs> like, because I want to be successful. I want to be successful. And like, whenever you see a successful black person on TV, they're always like, my dad wasn't there, but I made it. My dad wasn't there, but I made it. But my dad was there. And I did not make it. Like, I didn't... <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, it's just, um, I don't know, a lot of my jokes are informed of, like, I try to tell, like, jokes that are super, super personal to me. Mm -hmm. And, because, uh, you know, you kind of pick up on the idea that, like, oddly enough, the more specific you are, like, the more relatable it actually is instead mm -hmm. of trying to be broad as possible, like, mm -hmm. just telling jokes. Like, I like that joke I did about, like, how I can't swim. Like, I mm -hmm. can't swim. Mm -hmm. And I used to always kind of wonder, like, why is the stereotype exist that black people can't swim, even though there are, like, there's no swimming pool at my high school. Like, there's no, like, there was no avenue to swim or whatever you call water. Yeah, you don't uh, actually swim in avenues. Yeah, you don't have to swim in avenues. That might Rivers. have been what tripped you up right there. Uh, <laughs> Canals, I believe. Canals. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I also noticed that, for example, you used pauses a lot, mm -hmm. which I always feel for a comedian is kind of daring, you know, just like you stop talking, <laughs> let the audience digest this. I, I feel like if I were a comedian, I wouldn't want to hand them that much control. Uh, I, I don't know. Is there like, do you have a reason why you're doing that, or does it just make sense to you? Well, yeah, like... Oddly enough, like, you feel like you have more control when you pause, you know what I mean? Because um, people are kind of hanging on your words, you know? The more you do comedy, you realize that, like, you're the person with the microphone. People want to hear what you have to say. Mm. And a lot of comedy is, like, people think they know where the punchline is going to come. And, like, sometimes just letting it hang there. Like, like, the joke I do about swimming, when I say, like, you know, you know what could get me out of this? And everyone, everyone, says, everyone always shouts out, swimming. And it's like, I'm not going to say swimming, though. But I let them say that. And yeah. then I say the backstroke. And it's like, oh, like it's the same. You know what I mean? I let yeah. them get there first. And then I still change it up a little bit. Yeah. So how about you? Did you have like a kind of revelation? Or you saw another comedian when you were a little kid? I used to, I loved Chris Rock when I was a kid. And um, he used to, they had the uh, PlayStation Portables, the PSP, and they used mm. to they put all his specials that were out at the time on the UMD discs. And mm. I used to always like be in school or like at my house, just like under my covers watching his specials all the time. <laughs> I was like, I want to do that. And I used to always, like in like fourth or fifth grade, I used to get kicked out of class all the time for like telling jokes with my friends. And I used to be like, if I can get paid for this one day, it'll make it worth it to my like parents retroactively. You know yeah. what I mean? I was like, yeah. I was I was preparing for this right. all this time, particularly to your dad in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, dad who is overrated by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's right. All that. Let's bring Sean's dad up right now. Come on, come on. Hey. No. Big big round of applause. There he is. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, he is absent actually. Uh, all right, so. Um, <laughs> he'll be absent once in a while. Um, so, so Carolyn, how about you? Was there sort of a, an aha moment? Well, I, I grew up kind of watching like more sitcom acting and, and even like I Love Lucy, I would watch that in, in reruns all the time. And I kind of came to comedy sort of in a, a different way. Like I had studied theater in college and I always loved making people laugh and everything. And then I was in a show, I was in a play in New York and 
I lost a bet with the director and they made me go and do stand up. <laughs> 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 and the the guy who was running the the open mic that night came up to me afterwards and was like, I know you were forced to do this and we're kind of doing it as a joke, but I think you actually have some potential. So my aha moment was kind of just like thrust mm. upon me. Right. <laughs> you were invited to be a comedian. Most, yeah. Most yeah, people I, have to sort of elbow their way in. Well, you know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw, I had to start elbowing from <laughs> right. there. Yeah. <laughs> we just, everything in this world leads to more anxiety for us. Even the things that are supposed to soothe us, like Netflix, right? Netflix is like supposed to be this like comfort thing. But how many of you have faced this challenge? You sit down to like watch your Netflix, right? You get your bottle of wine open and you and your friend are like clicking through. Next thing you know, it's 11 o'clock. You f***ing have watched nothing. <laughs> You've just clicked through all the choices because it's so overwhelming. And now it's 11 o'clock and you're too tired to start anything. <sighs> I guess I see Netflix pretty much as like the same level of stress as dating at this point. <laughs> like, you know, you kind of go into it with an open mind you're there, you're, you're going to try something new, like Asian guys or documentaries about medieval castles. And, you know, you get there and you find something. And you're like, all right, I am into this. And you're like in a committed relationship. And you're telling all your friends about it. You're like rushing to spend all your time doing it. And then like halfway through, you're kind of like, I'm just not into this anymore. Like I kind of want to explore other options. But like also you just kind of have to see it through. So, but at least when Netflix, when something ends on Netflix, like, I don't feel that, like, you know, teenage girl desire to just eat a carton of ice cream and sit there and stress out and text, like, Stranger Things, remember when it was good at the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I am sorry to say I am back on the market after being in a pretty long-term relationship, so I am back on the dating apps. So... <laughs> Like, there's like Tinder and Bumble and Coffee Meets Bagel. Have you heard of this one? Coffee Meets Bagel. And I'm not really sure about this one because I don't know whether I want to be the coffee or the bagel. Like, I don't really want to be the round, doughy one, but I also, like, don't want the guy to be the round, doughy one. <laughs> but, so, you know, you have, you have all these dating apps, and the thing that I really like about it is that I can, like, sit home on my couch, like, I can be looking gross, I can just be lazy, and I can meet, like, 30 guys, get some groundwork laid, all while watching HGTV. Which, by the way, is not making me feel great about myself lately. You know, I'm watching that, and they're, like, totally redoing a house in two days. Meanwhile, I have been taking a light bulb from my living room and carrying it with me to my bedroom because I don't have my together enough to get another light bulb. So, Carolyn, a lot of your stuff is very much based on who you are. I should say that I actually know Carolyn fairly well. I think we would call ourselves friends, yeah, right? And yeah. We do other things together and we do other, we host things together and she's, sure. I'm usually happy to see her. I gave at, you a box of wine for Christmas. Yes, give me a box <laughs> of wine for Christmas. She's usually at my house on Christmas Eve. And the only reason I'm telling you all this is I just found out that she broke up with her boyfriend <laughs> in her comedy set. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that's sort of using your life, right? Yeah. So, and that's probably one of the reasons that my boyfriend broke up with me. But, <laughs> um, you know, I think like doing comedy, you're best at when it's something like you really know. Mm. You have to kind of really know that material to like cultivate it. And that's also that then what makes it 
relatable, like what you said, kind of like being a weirdo, like the things that make me weird or make me feel different or stressed out about myself or the things that like are incredibly relatable to those, uh, to like everyone around you. And when you're willing to like share that, there's this kind of cool moment that people are, they're laughing at what you're saying, but they're also laughing at themselves. So I think that that's a really cool thing. Actually, uh, I'm, I've so been twisted into your way of thinking about your own life is that when you announced that, I thought, oh, well, she could do the joke about hanging around the hot bar at Whole Foods now again. Um, I am excited to bring that back into my <laughs> repertoire. <laughs> On our show one time, Carolyn said, you know, if you want to meet a guy, just hang around the hot bar at Whole, Whole Foods. You see the guy getting the pre-cooked macaroni and cheese that he's putting If he's into the shoveling box. mac and cheese into a cardboard box, you know that he's single and you can, like, <laughs> hit on him. And then, yes. Yeah, <laughs> No, no one is taking care of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's really happy. That's to, where I move in. Yeah, that's. Um, so, a thing that we have to do in order for this to all be edited together into a show, and that is, we have to do a couple of breaks. And we're the way we're going to do this is, I'm going to say something, you know, kind of very MC-ish, and you're all going to applaud because you're really happy to be here. All right. Okay. So, we're going to take a break right now. We're going to be right back. We're live from CT Improv's Incredible Theater in downtown Hartford. You know, when the show goes on the air, don't tell people we did this, all right? <laughs> it's like a little secret we have, okay? A little fun secret that you know, that you don't have to go blabbing around to everybody you meet. I hate looking like this. Like, I don't, I don't scare white people anymore. It's important as a black person to be able to scare white people because as a black person, like, that's our only inherent power in this country is the ability to create white fear. Like, if, if I can't do that, I'm worthless where I come from. Like, in my neighborhood, they're going to take away my badge and gun. Uh, <laughs> only white people are afraid of me are, like, really, really old ladies. Like, at night. A really old lady at night, she'll see me and she'll, like, grab her purse and, like, waddle off really fast. I'm just like, what are you doing, lady? Don't run from me. Those guys are after me, too. <laughs> Got to stick together. It's a bad neighborhood of ours, use the buddy system. It's also just like, I'm 25 years old, I can catch up to that old lady in three strides, like... <laughs> give me your purse, I'll break your arm, old lady. <laughs> Point of that joke is... <laughs> is that I don't want to break an old lady's arm. But I can, and that's... It's important to remember, it's like... So we're talking right now with Carolyn Payne and Sean Murray and Stosh Makita. They're all uh, people who do comedy all over Connecticut and all of our other places as well. This is part of a conversation we recorded a few weeks ago at CT Improv's Incredible Theater in downtown Hartford. So I'm also, I mean, these days, like, I, I don't know, I, I did. I grew up watching Ed Sullivan and there were these comedians and they would come out and they would tell some jokes and then I'd see them again in three or four months or I might see them on another show. And, and I knew I had comedy albums so that I knew they were working in clubs. But there weren't podcasts, there weren't like all the other things that you can do these days. And, I, you know, Sean, maybe I'll start with you on this. I mean, you, one of the things that you do is really important to you is Fantasy Film Ball podcast. And there's a lot of stuff you can do these days besides just stand up in a club. I don't know, is that a burden or is that an opportunity or is it both? It is both because I feel yeah. like a lot of people want you to do stuff outside of comedy like because 
there are so many different avenues. I'm going to use avenues or not tonight. Uh, <laughs> for uh, for comedy now, people are like, why don't you do Instagram videos? And why don't you do improv? Why don't you do it? It's like, well, I don't have any Instagram video ideas right now. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm working on these the other jokes. You know, so it's, but it's also, it's really cool to like, get to express yourself in a number of different ways. Like what we do on, me and Stasha do on Family to Film Ball is a lot different from our stand-up. And it's like, but like. You should probably explain what the premise of. Uh, fantasy Film Ball is a podcast where we fantasy draft movies. So it's like, it's like a <laughs> fantasy football for movies. So we'll take a, you know, we did, uh, what was like a movie we did recently? Forrest Gump. Yeah, we did Forrest Gump. And uh, we had, a, one of our friends changed it to a, like a Chinese epic, which is really interesting. Like he casts. I think he cast Dwayne The Rock Johnson as Forrest, which is a really interesting choice. Uh, but yeah, it's like it's fun, and sometimes it's like more serious with our picks, and sometimes it's just like completely wacky. But you know, I don't really do that kind of that much wackiness in my stand-up, so it's mm. cool to have a different place to do that. I think another thing, Stosh, that happens in podcasts—not so much like the one that you guys do—but like I'm aware of the lives of comedians a lot now. You know, you're listening to Chris Hardwick's thing or you're listening to Mark Maron. And first of all, they're talking about their own lives and then they're interviewing Anthony Jeselnik about his life and, and about the, I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of information that's suddenly available about what it's like to be a comedian and what else is going on in their lives. And I sort of wonder if that destroys any of the magic of just encountering only a comedian, just seeing his or her best, you know, 15 minutes. For sure. I think we go out of our way to avoid, like we have a game set up so that we don't have to do that because there's there's no mystique to any comics anymore. You know, like you know where they were last week. They just told you a three-hour story. Uh, you know they stayed in a comedy condo because the club was too cheap to put them up in a hotel. You know the bed they stayed on was disgusting, and it's just I, I don't need to know that. Yeah. In fact, he didn't want to do that. We actually have members of his family as hostages. He didn't want to be on this show to tell us anything about himself because it would it would wreck things. But you know, so you you're retro enough so that you watch Lucille Ball reruns and stuff like that. But really. I mean, I guess you did sort of know a lot about Lucy and Desi from watching that show. But generally, with stand-up comedians, there's something about that whole process, right? You're alone on stage. There's this audience. You know, it's a very, very isolating thing. So it's weird to hear comedians sitting around talking with their friends about, like, having friends. I mean, because mostly when we encounter you guys... You're in this very kind of we lonely... We wouldn't have friends? Well, no, you're in a lonely <laughs> position, right? Well, first, let's just talk about that for a second. I mean, I, I do think this is the most lonely and terrifying form of art, right? Stand-up comedy? Go up yeah. Front, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you are. You're alone on stage. It's different than, like, improv comedy where, you know, you kind of have this, this team, this group. And uh, improv, all, I mean, um, stand-up, you also end up, like, traveling with it. You'll go and do shows, and, you know, you're staying alone in a hotel room, and, you know, you're flying alone. So I, I guess it can be kind of isolating. Well, I don't want to make it sound worse than it is. I mean, but, Sean, one of the realities of this is... I, I do... Th like, I... When I work with the CT improv people and see the improv groups, and they really do support one another, and they yes and one another and all that kind of stuff. There's nobody out here to yes and you. I mean... Not at all. Yeah. Uh, no, comedy is like mostly failure. You know what I mean? Like, before you get a joke to be funny, it's gonna be really unfun. Like, people really don't. I guess you know now with podcasts and like different behind the scenes looks at comedy, you get to see more of it. But like, you don't realize how many great jokes started off as the most unfunny thing you could possibly imagine. <laughs> it just takes so much work to get it there, and 
audiences are not supportive of somebody who's not funny. Like if you on stage to be funny, they want you to be funny. There's no like if you're you know if you if you play in a band and the the, the lead singer is not a great lyricist, at least there's a bass player. You know what I mean? Like he's got that cushion. Like I don't have a bass player. I have just me. <laughs> and if I suck, no one's sympathetic until it's funny. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so the question becomes, Stosh, like what? Why do this? Why they're I mean, it really is such an incredibly risky feeling to go out on stage. And, you know, as Jerry Seinfeld says, it's the one area where people, they can't lie to you either, you know? They can tell you the B movie was, like, a really good movie, you know? <laughs> um, and who knows? Maybe it was. But, I mean, either you're making people laugh or you're not. It's such a judgment. Why do it? It's so much fun. And it's, like, that's all that is what makes it a meritocracy which is great to take part in. You know, you go out there, and if you do well, you know it's because what you did has, has merit. You connected with the crowd, and it's a feeling that's, like, outside of drugs, it's not really reproducible. Yeah. That, it, <laughs> I would agree. All due respect to drugs. <laughs> well, you were about to chime in on that, right? So when it's good, the, the reward is so high, you're Yeah, it's to... like this really big rush. Of course, that being said, when it's bad, like, hmm. it's, it's the worst. Well, let's t talk a little bit about audiences. Audiences, Stosh, they're, they're all different. I mean, I assume there are nights when the material that killed the last place just doesn't work. I mean... Yeah, that's part of the fun about comedy, especially when you're hosting, you don't know what kind of audience you're going to get. Mm. You kind of have to, like, generalize by looking out at them. But if you're anywhere later in the show, it's just, like, watching what they respond to, seeing what kind of crowd they are, how not change your material, but how you deliver it might be different. And that's where like the the artistry comes into it is in identifying a crowd, identifying what they're gonna want and doing it. Yeah. Looking at my jokes backstage, <laughs> I'm like NPR crowd that that Bruce Springsteen <laughs> Billy Joel comparison is gonna work with them. <laughs> you can't give him two applause breaks on that joke and he didn't even do it the second time. <laughs> I'm salty. I'm very salty about that. <laughs> but that's that's an interesting thing about about why people laugh at things too. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a mystery why people laugh at things. I don't know. You're sitting there nodding. Do you have any thoughts about that? Mystery? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I guess that is. It is kind of like it's the fun of it is trying to read the the crowd, and I I think like. It, it'll be weird because you'll be performing one night and like something totally kills and the next night like you have to completely <laughs> gear shift and kind of <laughs> go a different route with something that worked really well the night before. So it is, and it, it can be literally just that there was one person in the crowd who started to laugh at something and it sort of generates that. Mm -hmm. So it's, there are just so many unpredictable things. Well, I think also, I mean, not to overanalyze humor because that's a good way to kill it, but like, Stosh, you got a laugh as you say, from this NPR crowd, because they get the idea that Billy Joel isn't as uh, as edgy or as profound as Bruce Springsteen. So you're kind of inviting them to share in your your sensibility and maybe your, a little bit of uh, all of our snobbery, uh, a feeling that we know that Billy Joel sucks and Bruce Springsteen is better. Whereas, Sean, an awful lot of your set this time was a little bit about the differences between you and the crowd, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like when you say, I could break that old, little that old lady's arm, yeah. They're not all going, yeah, yeah, we could too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like to play that up because kind of like what Carolyn is saying, like sometimes you'll go up on stage one night and a joke will kill and the next night. And that's one of the funniest things, like you'll, you'll be delivering it like you did the night before. Like sometimes a joke is predicated on a certain energy and you'll bring <laughs> that energy to the joke and you're like, ah, and the crowd is like, 
<laughs> so um, sometimes, like like Stash was saying, it's nice to be at a certain point in the show where you can kind of see like this is this is fish in a barrel for me. Like uh, <laughs> just like it's like it, if I see more than. 40% white people, I was like, I'm going to bring out some black jokes and they're going to work uh, <laughs> because they're not black. <laughs> so when I first met Carolyn, I met her, I think I met you at, at a cocktail thing at Real Artways and, and you, you were introduced to me as somebody who's doing stand-up comedy and living in Hartford. And I thought, I don't think I've ever heard that statement. I mean, <laughs> like I know a lot of famous comedians came from Hartford, but they don't live in Hartford and you're not even from Hartford in the first place. I want to ask all of you, you know, I mean... I think people might even wonder, can you be a comedian in Connecticut? I mean, for two sets of reasons. Are the venues there? And then also, I feel like there's this, this kind of sense that Connecticut audiences are maybe not the most fun-loving people in the world. You know, you get like a lot of, you know, actuaries and the land of steady habits. Yeah. And, you know, it's just sort of like, you know. So uh, maybe have all of you talk a little bit about it. Stosh, why don't you get it going? I mean, what's... Uh, you, Dan, uh, I yeah. think that stereotype is starting to die a little. Yeah. Joe Rogan is trying to keep that stereotype alive. He'll never hesitate to poop on a Connecticut crowd on his podcast. Um, <laughs> but I, I love it here now. Like, we have this venue we're at now, the CT Comedy Theater, is, like, equivalent to, in a big city, what would be the alternative scene. Mm -hmm. There's the clubs scattered throughout which is the club scene, obviously. You could go to Bridgeport and do a predominantly black show. Those are like the three staples of every comedy scene. So we really have like everything represented here now. And it's really, it's been beautiful the past few years doing comedy here. I love it. Mm -hmm. And the other hand, Sean, you did move out of New Haven to Jamaica, Queens, right? Yeah. <laughs> Does that have anything to I do with the Connecticut? Town. <laughs> Does that have anything to do with the Connecticut? I mean, what, what is the Connecticut comedy scene like for you? I mean, it's a lot like what Stas said, but also the problem with the Connecticut comedy scene isn't like the lack of venues or like bad crowds. It's just that in New York, that's where like agents aren't coming down right. to the CT improv. I mean, I'm sure they have, but I'm saying like generally speaking, mm -hmm. that's people go, you know, agents and like people in the business are going to New York and LA and Chicago and like Austin's got a good scene on the rise, but it's, it's really just to get more eyeballs on you. It's like there's nothing wrong with Connecticut comedy so much as the fact that like it it just feels like at some point you're gonna be uh, a big fish in a small pond and like going to New York was not fun to begin with like it's like it's like no one wants to be a small fish in any pond a small pond right. or a big one so there's a lot of comics and there's a lot of talent in New York so it's kind of tough to fight through that but it's a necessary. If you want to get to a certain point, Sean was getting so good at comedy that when he did finally move to New York, it was like we were five minutes away from giving him the Goodwill hunting speech where Ben Affleck is like, <laughs> every day when I come to pick you up for a gig, I pray you don't come out that door. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. <laughs> We're going to take a little break right now. We've got one more segment of this conversation to go, but we're having a great time with this audience at CT Improv, downtown Hartford. Woo! Woo! Hey, 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 hey. I'm trying to get my life together. I'm trying to get in shape because the women who work at the Golden Corral near me gave me a nickname. Table for one. So I went out and I joined a gym. 
I learned very quickly that I don't belong in the gym. There's not a lot I could do there, right? It's mostly just expensive classes I'm not in good enough shape to take, right? It's always the most extreme classes like tag team Pilates or, <laughs> or battle Kegels, you know, just... I don't know, guys. I probably shouldn't have joined the Curves. Uh, <laughs> guys, I'm Sasha Makita. That's my time. You have a good night. Um, I'm actually super thrilled to be here tonight, which means a lot because I spend most of my time in a fugue coming up with excuses for how to get out of commitments. <laughs> which is kind of sad because I really used to like going to parties, but you know, now it, it's kind of like things change. Remember when it was a bad idea to get in a car with a stranger? Right? Remember that? Well, now. I would rather sit in that car with that stranger Uber driver than get out of that Uber and go into the party filled with all my friends. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. But I think that we're all living in this time of anxiety. Like we're all just facing so much anxiety. And if you're gonna challenge that, just picture this scenario. You accidentally click something on your phone and go on Instagram Live and you're in your bathroom. Are you not in a cold sweat right now? <laughs> Now, Carolyn, you are the most vertically integrated performer that I know. There's like almost nothing that you don't do. I mean, you choreograph, you do all kinds of stuff. But I, one thing about Connecticut is, every once in a while, Carolyn will say there's something that she's doing. And it's like, I'm going to be hosting at some casino. Da, da, da. I don't know, you can fill, fill in the, those sentences. But there's a lot of things that you can do as a funny person in yeah. Connecticut. So I've worked at both Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun hosting game shows, which is just as funny as it sounds. I hosted the Cash Cube, the thing you get in, where people grab at money flying that around. Was <laughs> and I, they, they used to do like a match game during like February for Valentine's mm. Day. So things like that. So I've, I've done a lot of gigs around here like that, but kind of like what Sean said, I mean, there's not a whole lot of necessarily upward mobility if you just did comedy in Connecticut. But kind of like with anything that you would do as a performer, sort mm. of the goal is to be broad reaching and um, to get to... and. Uh, you know, I, I live here, but I, I do spend a lot of time commuting and traveling. And like this weekend, I'm going to California for the International Comedy Festival. I'm performing there and have a short film. So, you know, I get to kind of go around and do things, do do what I love, which is amazing. And mm. to get to travel with it is really cool. You have to tell at least one casino story. Do you want to tell about the woman who pulled, pulled you? Pulled me down yeah, by yeah, the hair? Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> 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 they had us, we were in like the atrium they, they had, like, built this kind of, like, little stage area for us. And uh, this woman, who is what I call the casino classic, she's in, like, a leopard print track suit. She has, like, a cigarette in one hand and her cocktail in another. She's, like, 85 and is, like... <laughs> and, and she was kept, like, edging, you know, and I'm trying to host. And you're you, when you're hosting a game show, you have a lot going on. It is actually a lot harder than you, you think it's going to be. You're kind of... You have to work the crowd as a comic, but you're also, you know dealing with the person who is the contestant and you have all these, you know, even earpiece in to make sure everything's modern and correctly. And anyway, so this lady kept kind of stumbling towards the edge of the stage and I, you know, was watching this and getting nervous for her and I got in a little too close and she stumbled and fell or started to fall and like grabbed me on the way down by the hair, mind you, like all, 
And uh, of course, I fell off the stage. She managed to stay on. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like at that moment, I was like, maybe I'm meant for other things. Maybe there's better things ahead for me. (laughs) But you know, the the it's something a job like that definitely like keeps you. It keeps you fresh, and it like challenges you to really learn how to like work a crowd and deal with anything that can come your way. Literally anything. Getting pulled off the stage by your hair. I should say also, you know, I keep looking at this thing, so, you know, you think radio hosts are so smart, or maybe you don't, but that they, you know, they can think of these questions. So I have, like, all kinds of notes here that were prepared for me by Panina and by Jonathan McNichol, and there's one here that says, what it says is, have them talk about the vagaries and whims of audiences, although every time I look down, I I see, have them talk about their vaginas. Uh, and, I, and I keep thinking, well, no, I can't, I can't. As I'm the only one who can yes, speak right. to that. I, I have been waiting for this moment my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I pull, out, I pull out my own iPad and I have notes above it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, read from your notes back to me, please. I do want to talk about, you know, I mean, even backstage. So backstage, there are some other comedy people backstage. And comedy people, when they get backstage, they start talking about other comedy people. And so we're talking about Tracy Morgan or whoever. And... I wonder about when you feel you can be serious. You know, I mean, forget about on stage, although we can come to that in a second. But, you know, if you spend a lot of your life being funny and mining each, each situation for, for its humor, I don't know. I mean, like, Sean, do you feel like there's sort of a risky thing for you to... I mean, I think most people would be scared to come out on stage here and try to be funny. Comedians sometimes seem like they'd be scared to try to be serious. You know what? The the I'm not even afraid to be serious. It's just hard to be serious in real life. Like people, like you, like you could say anything. If people know you are funny, and especially if they know you're a comedian, sometimes you'll say something, and it's just like they'll get either they they start they'll start, they'll start laughing as if you said something funny. It's like I mean, I just ordered a coffee, or they'll be like, "That's not funny." It's like, yeah, it's not, man. Like, please get out of my face. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I wasn't trying to be like people have an expectation for mm-hmm. you to be funny. Yeah. So either it'll be you're not funny enough at all times or they think you're trying to be funny when you're being completely serious. It's a really, like, it's impossible. It's, like, completely out of your own hands. It's, like, mm-hmm. however they feel that My day. My family got mad at me over a eulogy because they, I, <laughs> <laughs> my, my great aunt passed away and she was a really awesome lady and, and had this great sense of humor. And so my dad had said, I think you should do the eulogy. And I sat down and I wrote this like beautiful eulogy and was so heartfelt. And like after, you know, after the, the funeral, my parents, like every other people in the family were like, what the hell was that? They're like, you were supposed to make us laugh. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's your job. That's yeah, what, in my like, family. Uh, if if I'm at a funeral or awake, my job is to break the tension. I didn't mm. realize I was supposed to be yeah the, yeah. the comedic relief at the funeral. Mm-hmm. Is I that miss- a, is that a thing that not to get too Charlie Rose about this and not that way either? But um, <laughs> I was like, please though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he, he hits the trap door button. Before. I know. <laughs> that's right. They insisted I wear pants for. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, Stasha, I guess I'm sort of thinking, you know, I mean, has that been going on your whole life? Is that sort of one of the ways you find your way to comedy is that you were the guy who would break the tension or say something funny when everybody else was sort of getting kind of tense around the Thanksgiving dinner table or something? Yeah, 100%. I've done that my whole life. It got awkward for a while. It was, (laughs) you know, for the first 15 to 20 years or so, uh, not everyone in the family was on board with it, but now (laughs) I I feel like everyone gets me now. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just sort of wondering whether that's sort of an, you discover that you want to be a comedian maybe because you see somebody else being a comedian, but probably your whole life, it's been your way. I mean, it might have been your way of coping with fourth grade, for example, that you didn't really like being in fourth grade that much. I'm looking at you because you, you got kicked out of your fourth grade class. Oh. Uh, that was earlier in the evening. You oh, yeah. This. <laughs> I mean, was that, when you were doing that kind of stuff and being disruptive and getting kicked out of class, was that also just because that was your main way of relating to people at that moment? It was, uh, it was, it was partly that, but it's also just like, it was, you know, being funny is like so fun. Like, I don't think people <laughs> yeah. realize, like, a lot of... A lot of times I would get in trouble in school because I would finish my work and then I would just go around class like <laughs> telling jokes and like messing with people and like they wouldn't be done with their assignments mm -hmm. and they'd be like, like, you can't do this. I'm like, I did what I was supposed to do. Like, I don't care if he completes his assignment ever because uh, I have a joke to tell him and he needs to hear it. Uh, <laughs> it's also the perfect way to bring people closer or keep them at a distance. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. Keep them close, but not too close. It's, it's beautiful if you have intimacy issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is so beautiful, actually. <laughs> well, I'm also wondering about also being... So, Carolyn, this particular election cycle, I saw you got... Not serious exactly about voting, but yeah, serious about voting. You really sort of were very concerned about things and, and in a way that I hadn't seen you be before concerned about it. You were doing, you were blending comedy into it, but I, I don't know. Behind that, I sensed a kind of seriousness I typically don't get from you. I don't know. Can you say anything about that? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think most people don't take me seriously. That's true. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I very uh, adamantly believe that we should be voting and using our right to vote. So I did um, I made a, a short film about, you know, it is a scary time to be a woman or be a person in general, but I like made this kind of, this short that was sort of a parody of a horror film, like a trailer for a horror film about how voting would be important and how come November 6th, the thing to be afraid of will be women if they vote. So I sort of used my voice as a comedian to express something that I seriously believe in and is a serious issue. And, uh, um, Thanks, yeah. yeah, sure. yeah. Um, multiple woos and applause, too. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, Stosh, one of those big moments or strange moments in comedy over the last 12 months was the special Nanette, where a comedian started out doing conventional comedy and then shifted into this, in, I mean, in this way that I don't think any of us have ever seen before, suddenly speaking very, very seriously and in a very pained way. Uh, about things from her own life and things that she thought were important. And I mean, it seems like maybe a, something that most comedians just wouldn't want to do. But I found myself thinking, will anybody else ever do this? Or was this, is this like a one time where one person needed to do something like that? I don't know. Would, I, first of all, did you watch it? Have you seen it yet? I have seen it. What was your reaction to it? I wasn't a fan of the special. I don't take any issue with the attempt, what she was attempting to do. It's just like... You know how they say before you break the rules, you have to know the rules? Mm -hmm. I felt like uh, everything leading up to the turn, like her joke writing was very pedestrian. There was a lot of jokes that were really just almost street joke level that I've seen other comics do. So there was nothing groundbreaking in that. So I just, I felt like the attempt was there, just maybe not the execution I wasn't impressed with. Yeah. Sean, did you watch it? I did watch it. Yeah, what'd you think? Similar to Stash, I thought like, I'm not a, at all against the message of the special. It's just, it, I don't know, like people, there's been a big argument among comics, it's like, is this comedy or whatever? And it's like, some of it is not. Like, it's just straight up not, but that's 
I think it's fine that she did it. I, I think I applaud it, but it's also like, I, I can understand why people would get upset about, like, especially comedians, because it's like, I didn't know I could just stop doing comedy in the middle of my set. Like, imagine if like you went to see a basketball game and in the middle of the game they just stopped and was like, "We're gonna do some Shakespeare real quick." It's like, what? what? No, no, no. I want to. I want to see the fourth quarter. I want to see Steph Curry has to make a shot right now. I don't. I don't want to see. Put down the skull, please. Uh, so it's. I don't. Know, it was. It was. It was. I don't know, it's jarring. I, I think it definitely will continue. Like I. I'm excited to see it perfected. You know what I mean? Like I don't think I would ever do that. Where it's like I'm. I think people expect. They come and see a com comedy show. They want to see comedy mm -hmm. all the way through. But I think it will continue. And I think people will do it in a, a lot of more interesting ways. I don't think it was uninteresting. But I think it will be explored in, a, in fascinating ways. Like Neil Brennan did a special called Three Mics. And where he, one of the mics was like just short jokes. One of the mics was like personal stories. And another was like longer jokes. And like the, the personal story stuff, all of it wasn't very funny. But mm. he... He made sure to bounce around. It wasn't like half is this, half is that. He would bounce around and do a little joke, say something serious, go back to a joke. You know what I mean? So I think well, that's... Well, didn't, didn't Chappelle kind of do that with those two specials that he did yeah. uh, this year? Yeah, I mean, it was like feeling his way through. I mean, rather than, do, you know, just joke, set up punchline, he was kind of feeling his way through a bunch of different possible emotional reactions to the same material, right? Yeah, and then even like, I mean, I remember in, in the Age of Spin specifically that one of the Chappelle specials, he does this long story about like the history of America and black people in America and all this stuff, and it's not funny for like 98% of it. And at the end, he just, he wraps it up with this Bill Cosby joke that's just perfect, but you know, like, it was a masterful, I mean, Chappelle's one of the best to ever do it, so he, he mastered the way to like build that tension and create like complete silence in the room where people are hanging on this story and then finally he just switches at the end and it's a perfect joke. Yeah. So, Carolyn, uh, in many ways, your response to Nanette would be the most interesting. You have a vagary. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Sadly, I also think this is the second time that you have managed to like be like, well, you have a vagina. Yeah, you speak right. to this. <laughs> um, so, I, I prefer to say double X chromosomes. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I was on the nose that talked about this, mm -hmm. actually. For me, I mean, I had read nothing about the special, and I went into it expecting one thing, and it was. It kind of ended up being this, like, bait and switch, where as soon as she pulled that ripcord and this, this happened, I, I, I was kind of mad at it, because I was like, oh, I really wanted to just laugh. And, and I, I think that it is something that... I think a lot of comics and actors, a lot of pe a lot of people are using their voice to express themselves, mm. and I think she did it in an interesting way, and I think it will open the door for a lot of different ways for comics to not just you know not just be funny but say something. Yeah, I, I found myself completely riveted by this, but then also thinking, and I never want to see anybody do this particular thing again. I mean, this was yeah. really really amazing, but. I hope it doesn't turn into a trend. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think I'd rather see it woven together a little bit more. I think the, the Chappelle way seems to be better to me. You kind of wander around. Sometimes you're a little bit mad. Sometimes you're amusing. Sometimes I, I think it's like what Sean said. It's the crafting. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're almost out of time here. I guess I, um, I need a good wrap-up question. So here's what I'm going to go with, Josh. Imagine, we do have a few young people out in the audience. One of them comes up to you, say some 12, 13, 14-year-old kid, and said, I, I want to do what you do. Tell them either what they need in order to do it or talk them out of it or whatever your reaction would be. What would you say to that, to that young person? I would tell them the only reason to do it is if you are 
your personality, you're someone who can't control the urge to be funny to the point where it starts to negatively affect everything else in your life. Because if you could get a job... <laughs> if you could get a job, go with that, for sure. That's great. Go with that job. <laughs> school? School's awesome. Yeah. I don't know if anybody wants to follow that. I don't know. What, Sean, what would you say? What do you say? What? And somebody came up to me and said, I yeah. want to do comedy. Yeah, young, like, young person. Young person yeah. with... I'm like, you don't. I, I just think, um, like Stas said, like, there's so many other things you could do better with your time. Like, dude, I see some, sometimes I see people like at a bar, a funny guy at a bar, mm -hmm. and it's like, I wish I had that guy's life. He's got no pressure to be anything but the funny guy at the bar. Like, that guy, that guy is the funniest person to his friends. He's the funniest guy in the bar right now, and then when he goes, he has a real job. He has health insurance tomorrow. <laughs> and, um, like, there isn't the same pressure... For him to be like, I don't know the the idea that your comedy is insane to think that like literally anyone on the planet can be funny. Anyone can be funny at some point in time, and we think we just like oh, but we could do it for everybody. And it's like it's insane. Like it's you shouldn't do it. You really shouldn't do it. I really uh, take me home. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Caroline, you get the last word about this. All right. I mean, I guess I'd say like go for it, but maybe have a backup plan. <laughs> don't listen to them. Try everything once, and then you know. Get an education and see where it goes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Learn to type something. Yeah. 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 Um, thanks for coming out. Thanks especially to, yes, my great team, Betsy Kaplan, Carlos Mejia, Jonathan McNichol, Panina Beattie. Also, thanks to CT Improv. There was, this is just an amazing, wonderful place. Tonight, you're uh, helping us over at that counter. There's Nate Gagnon, who actually was an intern with us. He's having PTSD right now. Um, and especially thanks to Julia Pistel, who, I don't know, like Julia Pistel, she and Greg, they just do an incredible job of running this place. And so we got in touch with them out of the blue and said, well, we want to record a radio show, you know, in, in your space. And they just said, oh, yes, of course. Of course you can do that. So thank you so much for coming out. You've been great. Thanks. Thank you.